2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. I think we can all agree the current political moment is fraught. But how does it compare to the other fraught political moments in history? It felt for a time in part of that decade like everything was falling apart. Young people against old people, anti-war violence, peace movement. I'm former U.S. Attorney Preet Bharara, and this week, presidential historian Doris Kearns Goodwin joins me on my podcast, Stay Tuned with Preet. We talk about difficult times in America's history and how its people overcame them. The episode is out now. Search and follow Stay Tuned with Preet wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, Before we start, I just want to tell you about our sponsor this week, the Tech Meme Ride Home podcast. It's a bit like NPR's Marketplace. If it was only about tech, they take all the best headlines from techmeme.com and distill them into 15 to 20 minutes of podcast glory Monday through Friday around 5 p.m. Eastern. Uh, If you're looking for something for your ride home to catch you up to date about what you didn't waste your day uh, refreshing and scrolling through, it's exactly what you ordered. Uh, I recommend you find it in your podcast app of choice by searching for ride home and then look for the tech meme ride home podcast thanks to them for sponsoring the show here's the show hello welcome to the long form podcast i'm max linsky i'm here with my co-hosts aaron lammer and devin ratliff gentlemen hello hi happy late summer hello family <laughs> uh, you guys, we have a uh, repeat guest. I love a return this guest. This is uh, this is uh, an early one. Long form podcast number nine. Whoa! Aired all the way back in October 2012 when we wow. were it's a different when, world when we were but wait children. A wait a minute. Does that mean we've been doing the show for more than six years? Well, th- yes, yes. The answer is yes. We have been doing the show for more than six years. Maybe we can like process that. Some, put put some uh, party music behind this, <laughs> Janelle. I want I want the tinkling, the champagne glasses, all that good stuff because we missed our sixth birthday. Uh, but shout out to everyone who came to our fifth birthday party. Uh, that was a lot of fun. Uh, I would have said recently, but apparently it was more than a year ago. Uh, so who was guest number nine? Guest number nine was uh, uh, one of the greats, Jean Marie Laskus. I, uh, she and I recorded that interview in a hotel room in Midtown, put the mics on an ironing board. I did not know what I was doing. Uh, but it's been a uh, exciting six years for Jean Marie. She's written two books. One of them uh, is called Concussion. It was turned into a Will Smith movie about the CTE scandal in the NFL. And her latest, uh, just out next week, is called To Obama. And it is about the mail room in Obama's White House, which, uh, was a pretty amazing place. Listeners to this podcast probably read the article from which the uh, book was born. It came out right before the inauguration in 2017. It was written in the New York Times Magazine and was one of the Times' like most read articles for a really long time. 
struck a chord. I've seen some some bits of this book, and it looks really good. Yeah, it's a good one. Uh, we're not read the summering anymore, right? The summer is over. Uh, thanks to everyone who uh, read this summer uh, with the good people at Mailchimp and uh, everyone who went to uh, to that book fair over there. But uh, there's no better time than the fall to start an email newsletter, uh, maybe about what you are reading. Uh, start it with Mailchimp. You won't even pay as you get going until you hit a certain number of subscribers. So uh, if you're curious, dip that toe uh, and their support makes the show possible. And now here's Max with Jean Marie Laskus. Hi, Jean Marie. Hi, Max. I feel like you've had a. I'm catching you at the end of a whirlwind tour. It's been a busy couple days. Yeah. 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 What's the word that you were just using before I turned these microphones on? Oh, um, the word is bejingled. <laughs> You're I feeling feel, bejingled. I feel really bejingled. <laughs> okay. What um, what does that mean? I think bejingled means your brain is like popping with stories, and you can't even like keep track of them all. There's so many, and they're good. It's a great feeling, but it's also it's a quite chaotic feeling. It seems like the right time to have a long conversation about your work. Unpack all of this. <laughs> Do you often feel bejingled? I have been bejingled in my life. It's true. <laughs> you, you have a tendency towards bejingling? I think when you're like exploring on so many fronts at once, and maybe even when you're doing a story and you're in a deep dive in a story, that would be a state you'd feel like so many characters. And Well, here's the thing that I wanted to talk to you about. So we should. There's some caveats that we should get out of the way. I think. Yeah. We should divulge some things. That we are friends and like each other. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We do like each other. Uh huh. You're one of my favorites. No, you're one of my favorites. Anyway, that's one of our caveats: mutual favoritism. Also, we've worked together in a bunch of capacities. Yeah, haven't we? Yeah. Uh, you run the writing department at the University of Pittsburgh. Aaron and I have been going there once a year to mm-hmm. talk to your students. You've sponsored long form for a long time. That's another way. And then uh, we've been working on a project that I'm not sure we could talk to people about. Uh, That's a good question. Recently, yeah. I don't know, the last couple of months. So uh, we have all of these things. That's yeah, my many intersection points. Divulgences. Mm-hmm. Also, I think that you are the first person that has come on the show who occasionally I have like very long phone calls with. I like those phone calls. Yeah, and you know what? It's like I don't even really know you. You know what I'm saying? Wow, really? Mm. What do you want? You know, know? we cut. You know, you're like the old friend that like we don't keep in touch, but then we talk, and it's like, oh, it was just like yesterday. You know what I'm saying? I feel like we keep in touch. (laughs) (laughs) You're just making me feel bad. No, I just think that we have like. uh, We can pick up, is what you're saying. Yeah, I think that's a good friendship kind of. Feeling. I did really mean it as a compliment. (laughs) Okay. Well, here's the thing that I know about you, even though we don't really know each other, um, is that you are working on a lot of things all the time. So I'm interested in the feeling of bejingling (laughs) because I feel like you are in a position to feel bejingled a lot. You're like, you're running a graduate department. You're writing magazine stories. You're writing books. Sometimes those books become movies. And then you're working on the movies. You live on a farm. You got goats, goats and kids. Husband. Like a thing that I I wonder about you often is how do you do all of those things at once? 
they're all jobs. Like you, it feels to me like you are someone who has multiple full-time jobs. Yes, but I also have a ton of people around that I do these things with. Mm-hmm. I really do think that's a big piece of it. Okay. It just, it feels like stuff comes at you that is fun and interesting and you don't get to time it. So you can say, I don't want to do that because I don't have time. But you don't want to pass it up. So you say, it's either I'm going to do this because it's in front of me. I have a lot of that that happens. I wish I could space this stuff out. Do you regret saying yes sometimes? Oh, yeah, often. Do you get better at that? It, d- it doesn't stop me from saying yes. You don't say no more often than you once no. did? Mm-mm. But I would say it's the project's fault because they keep getting more interesting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, you're... you're um... They're all interesting projects. Like this book that's coming out. Yeah. It's a big book. It's And I wasn't intending to write a book. I mean, you know, that was a story I wrote for the New York Times Magazine that was a interesting dive into a little world in the White House that no one ever heard of. Mm-hmm. That's all it was. It was a story. And it just became bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And I mean, I'm bec- it filled my heart, that place, you know? So yeah. do you feel like you're just like playing the hand that's dealt? I do. I honestly, I don't feel like I'm out there seeking, like gobbling the world. I don't feel gobbly. So that story comes out. I looked it up. It, was, it hit the web on January 17th, 2017. Yes. So three days before the inauguration. Mm-hmm. And I remember those, I remember those days on the internet. That story was everywhere. Well, you also remember that inauguration, you know? I mean, those are I've moments. Blocked, I've, I've blocked that out. That whole sequence of feeling like you're just reporting a story that's interesting. It's the mailroom of the White House. It's a tiny little world that's kind of closed and chop because the administration's ending. But we all knew that the who was coming in, it was going to continue in some fashion. We didn't know that Trump was going to win the election. I was there that morning when he won. Yeah. Or the day, you know, the morning after. You'd been reporting that story before the election. Oh, yeah. All through the, yeah. And it was like fascinating because this, you know, there were political appointees who work in all these kinds of jobs. And so they were, they'd all worked there all through the Obama administration. Most of them had been there for eight years. And now they were finishing up this grand project that they had taken on. What was the White House like on November 9th? Well, it was really a... I would. I wasn't gonna go. Like we had planned it the day before. You gotta come. It's gonna be great. It's gonna be this email. Hillary, the first black president, handing over the reins to the first woman president. It's gonna be great. You come to the email room. We're gonna read. We're all gonna be there. And I'm like, oh yeah, that's great. And then of course, and then it's the morning, and I'm like, I don't know if I should go. And it was the you know early rainy. You show up. I had not talked to anyone. Like, you know how you needed to talk to people? Like, what yeah, the hell just were, happened? You, so you were just, like, in a hotel room in D.C. by yourself? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I'm like... Oh, that's intense. You needed to talk to your people. Yeah. And, it, and, and instead, I had to be there at 8.30 or whatever. And so the first person I saw was Fiona, who ran the mailroom, and then some of her people. You know, her, all that staff that there. And it was, it was... It was shocking. And it was sad. And the email coming in was like... America in meltdown mode. People are fearful. 
people who were in the mailroom are crying. Yeah, I mean, were folks like grieving? Yeah, there was crying and there was tissues. And But it wasn't like, oh, boo-hoo, we're going to miss our president at all. It was hearing, like sitting in front of like listening to what America was saying. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what are we going to do for these people is kind of the reaction. Like, these are our people. These are our letter writers. Oh, my God, we've let them down. You know, we've been listening to them and now they're not going to feel listened to anymore and we can't do anything about it. That's kind of like the the conversation. How did you navigate the place that day? Like, what do you do as a reporter when you walk into the White House on November 9th? You you can't not be a person in those moments. I mean, I couldn't. (laughs) I was like sitting with Fiona and we couldn't even make eye contact. You know, and she finally just apologized and said, I'm sorry, but you're the first person I've talked to. And I was like, oh, my gosh, yeah, you're the first person I've talked to. And it was just like, and then she starts crying. You all your guards go down. You're just like, all right. We're people going through this historic moment together. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's what we are. And that was okay. This was the feeling there. Yeah. It was so raw. Okay, so the story comes out on uh, a couple months later. January 17th and it starts going crazy and I don't know the exact stats but I remember talking to someone there who said it was basically like it's one of the most read articles of the year on that whole site which is a crazy year for crazy. news too yeah two questions one is like when a story starts going wild like that what's happening for you like what is the feedback like for you when do you start thinking like there might be a book in this there's something more and then the second part of it is why do you think that story did what it did? Like, why do you think that that story in that moment resonated in in the way that it did? I really think it was the idea of America talking. Like, like the story really was about letter writers needing something to say for the last eight years, saying it, and that there was someone on the receiving end via these mailroom staffers, I mean, that was my interest in these people who made this machine happen, getting the word to the big guy. And he was actually reading them. And then he was responding to them. Like, first of all, that that even happened was news to me, you know. Mm -hmm. And I think that in that moment when you're watching this new president and new administration come in, I think we all just felt like, oh, my God, we're losing. This is what we're losing. This interest this pledge to listen Mm -hmm. you know whether or not you believe in this president or his policies or anything like that the guy was listening and wow that's i think it just was touching Mm -hmm. to know that he was listening and i mean it would have been touching probably to know at any point but i think it was just so it was such a moment of like it was a precious thing to behold for that moment when it was about to go be gone poof I feel like that's what caught people. And then what was it like for you? I mean, what is it like for you when that story starts uh, going wild? I mean, at that moment, I feel like at that level, you're not really thinking about your story. You're thinking... Really? uh, um, (laughs) I, I guess because I, in that particular case, I so connected to the people, I was glad that someone knew about Fiona <laughs> and that so many people were knowing about this thing that was gone now. I felt like I felt was glad that that wasn't just all going to have happened 
and no one knew about it. Mm-hmm. I think I felt like that. I think. <laughs> I'm. That's okay. That would, would be another feeling I could have. <laughs> what do uh, you I was thinking. Well, I was thinking back to like the playing the hand that you dealt. So, oh, like when you oh, see something go wild like mm. that, you're like, oh, this could be. Mm-mm. A movie. This could be a book. No, I like, didn't. This is gonna, I'm onto something here. No, I didn't. In this case, no. I have felt that many times, but in this case, no. I would not say that that was going on until much later. Of like, huh? We should do something more with this. Mm-hmm. You have the thought. Oh my God! If you, you know, okay, these people are responding. If you only knew what else I knew, you have that thought. Like, holy moly! You haven't even read the letters, people. You haven't even seen the handwriting of these people. There were no letters in the story. Mm. No full letters. No artifacts, all this stuff. So you do feel that. Like, if that's interesting, you ought to know what else I know. So I had, I, I'm sure I had that. But I don't think I felt... I think in the back in the day, maybe, I would have felt like, oh, yay, another project. But I don't think I feel that these days. It's more like, oh, boy, I think that's a project. <laughs> <laughs> you know? I'm going to have to say yes to that. I'm like, okay, I think it is. I think, you know, more like that. Yeah. Hey, I'm going to pause things here for a word from our sponsor this week, TechMeme, who are the makers of the TechMeme Ride Home podcast. So I've been a religious refresher of TechMeme.com for many years. It's where I get a lot of my tech news. But if I wanted to distill that experience, which I would, into a 15 to 20 minute podcast, uh, they do it. Monday through Friday, hosted by Brian McCullough, who also hosts the Internet History Podcast, comes out around 5 p.m. Eastern. It's all the biggest stories of the day in bite-sized format, ready for your ride home, which is exactly what you need to search to find it in the podcast app of your choice. Just search Ride Home, look for the Tech Meme Ride Home Podcast. Thank you to them for sponsoring the show. Here's Max back with Jean-Marie Laskus. You've written a lot about people in jobs that the vast majority of Americans don't know about or don't see or understand. Is that how you always feel? Is that you you want people to know about those folks or was there something different about the mailroom? I think there was definitely something different about it because these were people who had pledged something to these people, like to the average American out there who just doesn't even know that this line of communication was for them. So to me, it was like a up a level. It was almost like soldiers were fighting this war that you didn't even know the war was going on and that we were winning the whole time. And by God, it was like patriotism or something. Mm-hmm. You know, or, by, something. or something. You know, like maybe versus a really cool experience in a coal mine where I love these people in this community I got to know. And I, I want you to know about them because you're just going to love them. Like... Or you're going to be like so freaked out by this guy, you know, like that's fun. Mm-hmm. But this has felt like more <laughs> precious, like we, were, I think largely because of the time. Can I posit uh, an additional theory, an addendum I, to your theory? I hope, yeah. I have thought about you for a long time as um, one of the great listeners in my life. I think you're really good at that. And I think that's part of what your stories are about too. Like it's going to these places where people don't go and then spending real time and trying to hear what people are saying. And 
one thing about that is it's always struck me that that's like uh, a difficult thing when you're bejingled and doing a thousand projects all the time. It's hard to be like present and like uh, in these phone calls that you and I have had, like you're all there, even though I know you're going to hang up the phone and you got 15,000 things to do that day. That's unique. That's rare. And so a theory that I had reading that story and talking to you a little bit about it since is that it was like the act of listening that was going on in that mail room and in the white house was mm. particularly meaningful to you. Well, that notion of listening. Yeah, absolutely. And then that's what they were committed to. Like I clearly related to that. You don't like see who articulates that as a value. Like even that you just pointed that out is so rare to even notice that someone listens. Like, really that that's even a value that or something you sensed in another person. And here's a whole team of people that that's what they valued and worked toward. That he was right in my, you know, zone, I think. Do you talk to Obama for the story or the book? Mm-hmm. Is he a good listener? Oh, yeah. But he's, yeah, I think so. But you don't talk much <laughs> because he speaks so slowly that you got to be so freaking patient because you just want to, first of all, you have a limited amount of time. You know that because he's the president and you want stuff from him. And he's thinking about empathy. And, you know, he thinks as he talks, you know what I mean? Like he's not a soundbite guy. He's a, a ruminator, like an academic. And so you dive in then with your, you know what I mean? I didn't give him much to listen to. It was more an act of, you know, it's interesting with him because I was impatient with him, trying to listen to him. So I'm thinking, dude, you have to got to speed up. Because <laughs> yeah. you were like looking at the clock. You're like, I've got another 26 minutes. And I know I am not going to get five questions into what I want to talk to you about. Right. If I get three in at this point, like we're almost, you know, and I'm also thinking things like, yeah, you, what you want to say is, I don't know how you got so far. <laughs> <laughs> this is the way. You, I don't know, hasn't anybody told you, gotten any feedback from this? <laughs> Lately, you got to <laughs> move it along. You got to zip it up. Um, so you're thinking that. And also, oh, but the really interesting thing with him was like, so I'm patient because, you know, it's the president. Only when I went back and listened to the tapes, it got so interesting. Hmm. Like you were... Uh... I was like, I missed that. I missed that. Whoa, I missed that. A lot. Like your your powers of listening were like slightly... Uh, bejangled. Bejangled by being in the Oval Office or wherever you yeah, were. Yeah, definitely. And like, it was a bad listening, you know, because I'm on a mission, which you shouldn't be. You should be like, usually you're trying to surrender to what the agenda is of the person, to me at least, you know, like I'm going in there with an agenda. That's always bad listening. But I would say in that case, it took a second listen. And was that that like simply what he was saying was interesting or that he was responding to your specific questions in a way that felt more thoughtful than it did in the room? Number two. Yeah. I have that experience on the show all the time. Oh. Where like I am also on a mission and uh, – huh. And go back and listen to the tape afterwards. I'm like, 
Well, that was actually a fantastic answer to that question. And I just like bulldozed on I, some other shit. I missed shit it. Next. Yeah. 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 That's how I felt. And also like, boy, if I really listened to this, I know now I'm unpacking it. That was loaded, you know, his way of thinking that through. And, the, you know, it was like you put a drop of water on something and it just expanded. And like listening the second time was like that, like. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. This is all opening up. Yeah. That's cool. You've profiled lots of famous and powerful people. Does that thing happen often? Or was sitting with the president in the Oval Office a different deal? Like when you're hanging out with Joe Biden, were you listening? Well, that's a certain kind of listening, you know, where it's like, you know, you, oh boy, we're going to rattle through this one again, you know? That becomes more an act of how do we going to get, you know, like push the pause button here so we could play the other tape that you know is in there in him. And that becomes an, its own separate mission. And we did, finally. It can, took months. Can you just be slightly more specific what you're talking about? So you're just saying like Biden's a talker. Oh, my God. And he's so entertaining that you can get dazzled. You do. You get dazzled by he's funny. He's charming. He's crackly, rascally. <laughs> But it's a there's a shtick quality to it that you know as a politician. I mean, I, I don't, that's not a criticism. It's like a, it's a thing. That's that Joe. He's doing Joe. You know. Mm-hmm. But in that particular case, I mean, we went to the Pope's inauguration. I mean, like I was hanging out with Joe, waiting for the moment. Um, and it really wasn't until finally we went to Wilmington, where he grew up, and he started touring us through his his town. And oh my goodness gracious, a different Joe emerged. Was that your idea to go to Wilmington? It was my idea to say we've got to do something because I don't, I mean, I wasn't going to write the story. I'm like, I am really wasting a trip to on Air Force Two to the Pope's inauguration because I have nothing to write about. I'm thinking that's not right. There has got to be something else here that gives me a reason to write about this guy. And um, Shayla Murray, who was his communications director at that time, she loved him. She got it seamlessly what was missing you know and she's like we got to go to Wilmington and she had never been to Wilmington <laughs> he talks about Wilmington all the time why don't we go to Wilmington and at that point I was like well I'll do anything to <laughs> rescue this thing and we got there and it was this I mean we were going to the swimming hole in the woods back here somewhere Shayla I told you about this didn't I <laughs> going in the mud and secret service guy is like mud mud over here sir <laughs> it was wonderful what do you like on those um Reporting trips. Like, what do you like on Air Force Two or trompsing around the woods in Delaware? Like, are you yourself? Are you some other version of yourself? No, um, I think I'm invisible mostly. A, and I hate saying this out loud because everybody always complains, but it's really true. I am really shy, fundamentally, 100% scared most of the time come on i know and that's like i don't even want to talk about it but so i'm scared and i'm wondering how i cannot be noticed you know because i don't know what to say and i'm shy i do I really I, I think that's what if you say i'm a good listener it's because i'm shy <laughs> but you're not shy with me no i probably was but over the course of reporting, do you get less shy? Do you feel more comfortable? 
no, I just think I become more invisible, so I'm more comfortable. Like, you never want, I mean, I think this is true for a lot of people. If you're reporting, you just don't want it to be about you. So you don't even want to insert yourself. So it's a very comforting place in that sense. You know, it's not a social event where you have to be engaged back and forth. You're about the spotlight on the person. So in that way, I mean, it's probably why I do what I do. You know, you can be you can be a camera lens instead of a person. So I think I don't talk about myself. I don't talk about how my day was or. <laughs> People should see the face you're making right now. I would not sit down with Joe Biden and say, I am so bejangled right now. You wouldn't. No, but I think some people, that is a technique that some people use to sort of like, I'll open myself up to you. So you, But I don't. That is not anything I've ever found. Okay, so like, all right. Imagine Joe Biden walked in here. You walked out. Joe Biden walked in. And I was like, what was your impression of Jean Marie? What do you think you'd say? I don't know that he would totally have noticed. I have such a hard time believing that. Mm. I really think so. Or, uh, I mean, if that is not like, oh, I'm ashamed of that. It's just more like, probably. I'm, I'm, I'm not, like, um, I'm trying to figure it out. It's yeah, interesting yeah. to I hear me. You. Like, uh-huh. in my experience, you are a significant and hugely warm presence. Huh. And the only way I can picture you talking to Joe Biden is significant and hugely warm. Uh huh. But okay, maybe. But here's the version of it. Are you always that bl- always that blue? Like, <laughs> wow. Do you know how blue your eyes are right now? Like, I don't know if it's your shirt or if it's your. I'm noticing something about him that I know will make him feel good about himself. Mm-hmm. I'm noticing it, but like I'm, it's like that you're throwing. The focus on the person, the person, the person, the person, the person. Like a shrink, probably. I feel like you'd have been a good shrink. I'm married to one. Oh, really? It's helpful. Yeah, I think you'd have been good at that. So that's so that's how it feels to you? Yeah. I think it's it's comforting. This must be so fun for you, then. Yeah, this is great. I'm loving this. <laughs> <laughs> how are we doing on time? Let's look. It's 6.30. Great. We're in great shape. Urgent, wait, urgent information. Do you want to hear about this? Yeah. Your flight was canceled, but we rebooked you. But we rebooked you for what? But we booked you on the best available flight. Is today Friday? <gasps> no. No. Today is Thursday. 7 a.m. tomorrow. Are they allowed to do that? Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. That's such a pain in the ass. What, do you want to take five minutes to figure out what you're going to do? Yeah, I don't want to deal with it now because it's like, I want to deal with the fact now that I don't have to deal with it. <laughs> you know, and then. Yeah, you're just in, right now you're just in like some. Like, huh, I wonder what I'll pr- do. Like protected space where you have no plans. Oh, there's like nothing I can do about it. Yeah. Well, this is an unprecedented, we're in an unprecedented moment on the long form podcast. Never before have I had someone come in and be like, I only have 55 minutes because I got to get on a plane and now your plane has been canceled. Yeah. And I know that you have nowhere to go. Nowhere. Now you just have to answer my questions for hours on end. (laughs) You are totally fucked. (laughs) You are screwed. Uh, Now I get to like uh, move to the expansive version. All righty. I was doing like the Cliff Notes version. But now I get to do the like uh, encyclopedic version. (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, all right. So your version of events is that as a reporter, you are leaning into this kind of like um, shy shrink mode. Yeah. I'm okay. sure I'm not alone in that. Like you talk to people like why they do what they do. And in the reporter world, there's a lot of that. Oh, I think in the writer world, there's a ton of that. Mm-hmm. Where you were the person in the family who never could figure out how to talk because it's so loud. Yeah. And then it just bursts out of you and you break out of there. You got to talk. You got to find a way to say all the stuff you've been meaning to say for all those years. I don't think that's unusual. What do you like as a parent? Me? Yeah. Mm. It's it's changed a lot. It changes a lot because now they're teens. I call them the teens. Oh, yeah. I say, hey, what's a haps, teens? I love that. <laughs> How are you doing, fellow teens? I pick up all of the hip language. Oh, cool. Like I say extra now. <laughs> I, you are so extra. <laughs> I love that. But And then I find out like, wow, I that's already gone, like way gone. Mm. To me, it's brand new. So uh, I don't know. You know, like any parent, I have cranky. You know, it's like you got to do stuff. You know, you got to get stuff done. And then you go, wait, I'm fun. How am I not like the fun one? Because we got to get stuff done. <laughs> so there's like a, a split. Because mm-hmm. you think you should be more fun than this. You are more fun than this. Wait a minute. But then I'm like, what time? You know? Not shy, though. Oh, no. Um, how does it feel to have this book coming out? It's getting treated like a big book. I can say that. You can't say that. But like, there's a big marketing campaign. It's a big swing book. It's an interesting book to come out at this time. For sure. You know, it, you know what? It does feel good coming out in that way. Like, I think it's good for people. (laughs) Like, like, I feel like it's going to, if you get a chance to get it, like read it. It's going to make you feel a little bit better. You think so? Mm-hmm. You don't think it's going to make people feel like nostalgically worse? No, I think that it, I think you feel sad for what's gone, what's been missing. But I also feel like it's a cleanser. Mm. You know, it's like, like Bob Woodward's book is coming out now and it is like fear, fear, fear. And we, we just can't get enough of like, what the hell? And it's fear, big words, you know, fear. And we can't get enough. And it seems like almost like this book is the opposite, the antidote of like, okay, we can't get enough of that. But you know what? You might need a sip of this to remember that this is also who we are. And like as like a palate cleanser? I think it is. And I think it's okay. Like, it's not like I'm writing about like, you know, 1800. I mean, this was just two and a half years ago. We had this, which means we can have it again, which means like there's a reason why we're voting there's a reason why we're doing this it's like we should have this it's not that it's not that weird that's how i feel it's a refreshing in that way what was it like to spend all that time with that material like you worked on the book for <sighs> how many months i guess about a year which is fast for a book right for a year you were like living in this very recent history yeah it was weird because this core team at the White House had gone, you know, they were done. So a lot of it was like picking up with them again, like, how are you doing? And no one, 
too perky. You know, this is hard. It is like grieving. But also the chance then was to talk to these letter writers and get out there and meet, you know, who are these people who wrote these letters? And what were they thinking? And why? And what did you, what was this about? So the, all of a sudden you can do all these, like, character studies. One after the next, after the next, and the next. So it's like a treasure trove in that sense. And we had, honestly, when I talk about help, like, this was a, you don't write a book that fast and report a book that fast. You just, humanly, not possible. So we had, like, a team, you know? It was like a, a collaboration. Rachel Wilkinson and Aaron Anderson, they were out there in the world and then just, like, sending me tape back and sending me photos back and like we're doing this all double timing on this so it was like a crash through america and through our recent past and then piles and piles and piles and piles of letters and sifting through who do we want to talk to and which ones of these letters i mean it's so every one of them one's better than the next and it was moving to read back some of that stuff from the early you know 2000 Eight people writing about their mortgage payments. And what was it like to like bounce between that and the news? Oh, it made you feel urgent to tell people. Like, this also is going on. Like, these conversations, these people. America is like this, too. Not this stuff we have on the news. That's not the only America I'm immersed in right now. <laughs> I, I don't know what it is to me, but it feels hopeful. It made you feel optimistic? It did. Sad. But like there was something worth fighting for, you know? Mm -hmm. Like that. Like charge. <laughs> That's good. Yeah, it was. But it's a really, I mean, I had to read this book out loud for the audiobook recently, so I'm like, it's fresh on my mind. You think it's like kind of a soft subject. If you just step back, you go, oh, that's what a sweet letters. But man, you read it, it ain't soft at all. It's like pretty brutal. What felt hard about it to you? The stories are so hard to take. Like, because a lot of these people are writing these letters in these moments of desperation. That's like a common feeling of, I got nothing. I don't know what else to do. I, I, I resort to writing a letter. I mean, it's odd. Why would you write a letter to the president? You know what I mean? And often, so often it was because I got nowhere else to turn mm -hmm. in this moment. It's usually a discreet moment. So they're very intimate, you know, stories people are telling. Ashley is writing about her father with a gun on Christmas Eve, shooting up the house, and she's trying to save him from killing everybody and himself. And he has PTSD and he's, he's finally lost it. So she writes, Christmas morning, dear President Obama, you know, telling about the bullets and what it felt like and and how she's trying to save her dad and and the letter goes on and she's not asking for anything she's saying you know what i got nothing left to ask for my family has pretty much died even though they're alive but i mean like we're done this is it for us we've collapsed i just want you to know about it because there are probably so many more people out there like me and you gotta do something for them like, that was her message. It was so, like, what are you thinking a day after your dad just did that? And that's your, that's your way of responding to it. It was, it's hard to get through. I can't get there through that letter without crying. I feel like that's been one of the um, 
like reactions to the book, the early reactions to the book is that people keep crying. And I think my assumption was that that was grieving. But maybe it's more about that. I think stories. it's, you know what it is? I, I thought, I, you know, you think that too when you first say it, but I think it's more a touching. I don't think it's Obama nostalgia. Maybe there's a piece of that. But you're going to get that everywhere. You look, if you take a pause for a moment and say, oh, if you were a person who was supportive of him, but I don't even think you needed to be. I think it's more a touching of, whoa, these people in these moments, and then they reach out, and then there was this army of people making sure that they were heard, and then they got heard, and then in so many cases, he wrote back, and that, it's a Mr. Rogers moment over and over again, like, because when they hear back, it's not like, yay, you helped me. It's like, oh, I matter. Like, I matter. Over and over and over and over again. And I think that's what kept happening as people reached out and then hear back. Maybe it's not a personal note for the president. Maybe it's something Fiona and her team cooked up that's a beautiful response, but it's an acknowledgement that you've been heard. And I don't know, there's something really touching about that in a time when nobody is listening anymore you know we're just shouting because we have to and you go oh wait people need to be heard like really need to be heard you talk about free speech we're all free speech you know it's america free speech free speech free speech but we don't ever talk about what comes with that like there should be like an asterisk at the end of that and you have to listen, you know, the other side of it. Yeah, you get to blah, 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 say whatever you want. But you who, that means you got to listen to. We should have gotten that in that. Just like one more thing in the Bill of Rights. Yeah. You've talked to Obama since he left office. What is his feeling about that stuff in hindsight? <laughs> I'm going to have to do it <laughs> Yeah, Hello, you, everybody. Do your Obama impression. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Um, you know, here's the thing. This is like the one braggy thing I'll do because it meant so much to me. That story came out. First of all, he tweeted it. It was his like second or third tweet as a citizen. Like, hey, everybody, here's a story about my mailroom kind of thing. And then I, he sent me a note responding to it. Really touching. Talk about feeling like, oh, wow, I've been heard or, oh, wow, I matter. Whew, I got that really. But when you read the note, what you see quickly and even that little tweet, it was like a thank you for acknowledging that this team was doing what they were doing. Like it feels for him like I'm so glad to know. He's like, you know, he didn't ever sit in the mailroom and it gave him a window into what all those people were doing that was really meaningful to him. That was cool. Mm-hmm. That you had something to contribute to his understanding of his... That, like, was woohoo. I mean, it's just, to me, it just feels like it would be surreal to go and sit and talk to him about, like, listening and empathy in 2018. It was... There was a lot of elephants in the room. <laughs> you know? Yeah. That you didn't dare touch. I felt it would be such a freaking insult to say, you know, huh, how about that guy now? Like, 
What do you think? You think he's listening? You know what I mean? Like, it's such a higher level of, like, dignity that you're on that you almost don't want him to know. It's like if your dad had to know about something ugly, you just didn't even want him to know about. Like, it was, I felt like I was protecting. Like, we're not going to talk about that. I just, that's how I, I didn't want him to be tainted in these moments with what was going on because this was like this pure thing. Mm-hmm. But we did, I gestured toward what's going on now and, you know, he's he's a pro. He, he, skittered, he skittered along easily <laughs> enough. <laughs> Speaking of like um, soft topics or not so soft topics you wrote these two pieces about guns Mm. for gq and they came out in periods where i had not had a long phone conversation with you in a while and (laughs) i wondered when they came out they're both kind of quiet stories in a way they were like felt to me like way outside the traditional grooves of that issue and the reporting about that issue and Mm. Um, one was about a gun store in Arizona. One was about this incredible office of bureaucracy <laughs> in West Virginia. And I wondered what had prompted you to go and do those stories, like what you were curious about with guns. I find it parentally fascinating in the saddest way imaginable. You know, that we still have this that we have this issue of gun ownership in this country that is just so past being even an issue anymore. And like, what is that? Really compelled me the very first one was like, sort of like hunting for me. Like, I love little animals, you know what I'm saying? So like the idea that people would go out there and shoot them Like, what is, you really, that's fun for you, okay? Like, the most impossible thing for me to understand. I need to go to it. Like, so I went with these hunters, and, like, we did deer season together. And by the end of that experience, I got it. I got it. I actually got it. Same thing with this, like, gun store. It was like, there are people who think so differently from the way I think. And I'm not going to argue anymore about how I think differently I want to know. I just want to get it. And that was that experiment of like, it came out of the um, Tucson shootings. And this little tiny clip in the paper about how the bad guy, I don't even say his name, kind of like the TikTok of his morning and where he bought the bullets and where he bought this and this and this and this. And in one moment, he went to go buy ammunition at a Walmart. And they turned him away. And it was, I was like, what? Like the clerk at Walmart said no? And that really fascinated me, like, oh, who's making these decisions? Like, who gets to have a gun? Like, freaking clerks at Walmart? So I actually, my first idea was I want to meet that person who said no to this lunatic. What did you see that everybody else missed? <laughs> and um, what were you thinking, you know? Well, that, of course, the Walmart, Walmart is not going to tell you who that clerk is. But it, it opened up the idea of, like, who are these clerks who sell guns? So it was like, go to... Yuma, Arizona, gun heaven, and be with the clerks and sell guns and learn what it is from their from their point of view. Who comes in? What do you say? Do you turn people away? Why? And, of course, that's the idea 
but then it turns into a whole other thing like any story where you just surrender yourself to the material until you're like, okay, I'm buying a Glock. <laughs> yep, and uh, an AR. Yep, I'll take one of those. And because I can buy anything I want and have it immediately. And really? Okay, I want an AR. And then I'm picking one. The guy next to me says, "Good, that's a good gun. That's good. Uh, yeah, thanks. Yeah, it's the one I got my kid. And I'm like, the same one, really. And I'm thinking, how old's your kid? I think I said, how old's your kid? Because he didn't look that old. And he said six. And then your moment, like the moment you have that, you're like, okay, it's so complicated right now. Because on the one hand, I can't freaking believe you bought a six-year-old this thing. And then at the same time, I'm like, oh, I'm such a wuss. I picked a gun for a six-year-old. Like, I was embarrassed. Like, it's got so complicated. So what, where did you land? What did you learn? Really, it was a life changer. I just remember writing to my editor, who must have been Mike at the time, Mike Benoit, about how I'm buying these guns, and I wasn't kidding. Because I was like, I, I mean, I am kidding. I'm not going to use them. I wanted to know what the experience was like, but I'm trying to explain these people to him. And he's like, I don't know what's happening to you. Like, I'm really actually getting worried. And I real it was like the separation from that way of thinking and this way of thinking. Like I have to figure out how to bridge this. Like that's the experiment now. That way of thinking that I'm so used to that that he had, and my new way of thinking where I'm starting to understand these people and the need for self defense and like all this stuff. But there's nothing in between. Mm. So the, I'm like I want to write about that in between space. I just want to figure it out. And you know what I ended up doing? going to the gun range and shooting zombies in frustration because I couldn't figure it out. Like, they had a gun range there and they had zombies. And Uzis. And they're like, I don't know. And I just shot. Like, what is going on? And it, it defeated me. That defeated me, that story. Really? Mm-hmm. I understand both sides. But not, the, I understand, but not the in between space. I understand both sides in an instant where it's impossible to contain both sides. How do I, how do you communicate? I can't, to this, I'm, I'm so stymied right now trying to communicate this to you. I remember saying there are just, I know we say there are two Americas, but there are freaking two Americas. And we don't have, there's no bridge. There's no bridge. I can't find it. How else have you looked for it? Where else have you looked for it? Well, I mean, that, that, this is all before sort of politics became what it is today, but, like, we are there. Yeah. We are there times a gazillion now. Well, maybe a better way to ask that question is, like, I mean, what do you do now? Here's what I think. I feel like it is the question of, like, I literally think this is, like, the question of my career. If I ever even thought of it that way before, like, this is where I land that that's why the election hit me it hit everyone but it hit me in a way of like whoa what's my role here i don't understand that side at all and like this election has just shown me just how profoundly i don't understand it so what is my role like i had this question a thousand million times and for me 
it's to go listen to the other side over and over and over again. Like same thing, the, the experiment that I think I mentioned to you probably before is like going to this little town. That's another piece I'm working on called Denora, PA, where it's just sort of essentially in my backyard, but people who think so differently than I do, you know, it's sort of like, I need to understand. What do you think that's about? Like, I just don't think it's enough to complain and to kind of like elevate and make jokes. It's like, it's not getting us anywhere. Have you always been wired that way? Mm. I don't know. Like, what do you mean? I don't know. I think like the natural human instinct when there are two sides is to pick your fucking side. Yeah, it is. And so. But aren't you just so curious? It's like with those hunters in my backyard, like the same thing. Like, really? This is like a sport? Really? I got to go find out. Like, I just need to find a thread of that that I understand. I am not going to shoot a deer. You're not going to get me there. But I'm going to sit with you in the woods at five in the morning and wait, waiting for the sun to come up and listen to what it is for you that is so thrilling that you're willing to be out here in the rain. It's freezing cold and you are so happy right now. And what is happening for you? <laughs> like that. You just got to tell me, you know. There's one other piece of this which I'm interested in your thoughts on, which is like, I think journalistically that exercise has been uh, fraught. Mm. in the Trump era. Yeah. The um, going to the other side. Mm-hmm. And listening. And... Mm-hmm. Because you're not listening ultimately is what I would say. It's hard. Explain to me what you're talking about. I don't even understand what you're talking about. Like why Why have those pieces, and I think you know the ones I'm talking about, I mean like these pieces on the alt-right, you mm-hmm. know, these like profiles of alt-right people. Well, it's just like anything where you're going to the, you know, the strangers in the strange land. It's all exotic. And woohoo, what? You know, for the longest time, that's all you can see is the exotic of it. So you have nothing to say other than what? You know, and woo, for a really long time. And then at what point do you start having something to write about? So what's the difference? How do you get around that? You well, know, I keep going back to these hunters. That was so long ago. I don't know why I'm thinking of this, but it's a good metaphor. Like, there's a version of that story which would be, whoa, that guy, he's getting up at five, and this is his camo, and he's got his brother, and it's great, and then we're going to go pull the skin back and slaughter the deer, and it's like, ah, oh, it's disgusting, you know, because it's shocking. That's like the one-day version of the story. Yeah. So basically it's time? I Probably I do think it is, yeah. I do think it's time. Because I don't think you can know. I don't think we can get it. And you're too busy also being upset by it. It's really hard to we get past that upsetness. You How know? do you do that? How do you do that work? Is that also just time? I, just, I guess it is. It's such a boring answer, but I think it probably is. All right, I'm going to ask this one more time, uh, just annoyingly. What do you think it is in you that makes you, with all these things that are going on in your life, willing, eager, able to go and spend the kind of time that it takes to listen 
when it feels like so few people are willing to do that? How can you do that? I don't know that so few people are willing to do it. I don't. But let's just say, let's just lose, say that, part of, lose that part of the question. I just think it's a luxury, first of all, to have that kind of platform to do that kind of story and uh, be paid to do that kind of story that you can put that amount of time in it with no one pressuring you to like turn something around. That's not the model that we're all living in right now at all. So would other people have take advantage of that if they were in my situation? I think tons of people would. So, I, I mean, I don't think it's that rare, but let me just say, let's pretend it's rare. And let me think that through for a second for the thought experiment. I Well, I, honestly, for me, it's just like I don't have anything to write about until <laughs> I've put the time in to figure it out for me. It's like with Joe Biden. I just didn't have anything to write about. Or who cares that other stuff? If I write about it, like who cares really? <laughs> why would you want to read that? Like, or why would you care what I have to say about that? Stuff that, if I don't care about it, maybe that's it. I'm just waiting to for that level of understanding that I care. Right. But I, it feels to me like we're living in this moment where it's hard for the vast majority of people to care. Mm. It's hard to get to a place where you're curious about the other side because it's so easy yeah. to like just make the joke. Yes. It's fun to make the joke. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think the pressure's on to make the joke too. I think the external pressure of like getting in there and observing that thing that's so funny before someone else gets it, you know? I feel like that's our, like the Twitter sort of life that we're in. Get in there and be clever. Yeah. I do think the pressure is on us to do that. Well, imagine like the younger people who might be listening to this who feel pressure to oh, make yeah. those jokes oh, yeah. who don't have the platform yeah. to go and spend that time what would a young Jean Marie Laskus be doing right now well I mean I I love it when people write to me and ask me that especially because the people who are thoughtful enough to say you know I, I want to do this kinds of stories and like what am I doing wrong that I'm not doing them and they'll say these things to me you know strangers and I just had a great exchange with someone who said that to me. And I'm like, well, it just sounds like you're not interested in what you're writing about. And I think that if you just like, what do you what are you interested in? Just do that for a while. Just take the time to do it. And however you can afford it, just try it. The thing that you're really curious about. And I remember she said, yeah, but and she wrote back and she said, yeah, but no one cares. I'm not going to find an editor who cares about female bull riding. I'm like. Are you freaking kidding me, sweetheart? <laughs> get out there and ride a bull or get with your bull riding girls, whoever these people are. Why are you interested in this? That's ridiculous. Please give me more. Mm-hmm. And then that exchange went back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Which she's like, you know, I'm just going to live in my truck for a week. I'm going to go with them. Just going to see what happens. And she was it's like, don't worry about where that's going to go until you get back. You don't have to worry about that, but at least go. That's what I think, that stuff. 
I think there's so many people who have that sense of adventure and curiosity that it's squashed so easily. I mean, it, it's always been, but especially now where you're just, what's, what's your take? You know, what's your video? How many words? And no, you just like whatever this is in you that you're curious about, that is where you got to be. That kind of stuff. I feel like it's easy once you have the like the permission from a, even a stranger that you've written to. Just need a little permission. Just got to write a letter. Well, everybody has that. I mean, I really, everyone has probably 500 of them that they're not even like allowed to think about yet <laughs> because the pressure of trying to be, you know, I mean, I get it. Is it hard at all to stay curious in this moment? Is it hard at all to like maintain that when you've done as many stories as you've done? And I don't, you know, that's a really great question. You'd think maybe it would be like you'd start like maybe you get cynical or you're like, yeah, I know that. I know that story. I don't find that though. I find it the reverse. Like, oh my, there are just how did there how did there get to be so many stories? I didn't used to have this problem. I feel like like it just it seems to multiply to me. Maybe that's why you got all these things going on. No, but maybe it's because you're you've somehow given yourself the permission to go deep dive into just random stranger that there's going to be something there. You know it. You've done it enough to know it. Mm-hmm. And oh my god, there's another one. There's another one. Oh my god, there's another one. Well, I feel like if you had to choose between um, maintaining that curiosity or never learning how to say no, mm. you got to choose maintaining that curiosity. Yeah, don't you? Yeah. That's a deep thought. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm so glad that um, your flight got canceled. <laughs> I'm so glad that horrible pain in the ass happened. Uh, so I could trap you here longer and ask you all these questions. It's, it's like it's like uh, talking to you on the phone. I love talking to you. Hey, Jean Marie, thank you for doing this. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Long Form. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor is Janelle Pfeiffer, and our intern is Tyler McCloskey. Thanks to them. Thanks to our sponsors, MailChimp, the Tech Meme Podcast, and the University of Pittsburgh's writing department, which for years was uh, helmed by one Jean-Marie Laskus. But it's got a new head, Peter Trachtenberg, our old friend, and Jean-Marie has a new project at the University of Pittsburgh. It's called the Center for Creativity. Her new book is To Obama. It's out next week. We'll see you then.